from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast. It's your ultimate guide to award season. I'm Yvonne Villarreal, and I'll be one of your hosts. I cover TV for the Times. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. I write about film for the Times. This is our first episode. And in the months ahead, this podcast will showcase key voices across both TV and film. Why did you want to make this podcast, Yvonne? Well, you know, it's been such a challenging year, and I wanted to hear directly from the talent who've helped us get through this weird and unusual year. And TV has certainly been a constant companion for me in these times, especially when friends wouldn't answer their phones. And I also just wanted to hear from, you know, the actors and creatives, you know, about how they're thinking long term about the impact of this moment on Hollywood. What about you? I mean, I think at the core of the work that I do in general, I like talking to people and then sharing their work with other people or or our audiences. And so the idea of doing a podcast, I think, especially in a year like this, I have found that when I've been interviewing people, people are very eager to talk and to sort of talk at length about things. And so the idea of a podcast just seemed like a great way to talk about the movies of this year with some of the really exciting people behind them and to then sort of share those conversations and ideas with other people. And today we're so excited to have Andy Samberg as a guest on our show. He recently starred in and produced Hulu's romantic comedy Palm Springs. And for those of you who may be wondering, yes, we do try to get to the bottom of that that movie's kind of odd and ambiguous ending. There's two stories. One is the science sci-fi story plot, and the other one is the emotional romantic story between Niles and Sarah. And they interweave a great deal. But, you know, I think it's the correct response for people to wonder what happened and then have hopefully fun conversations with people who agree or disagree with them. (laughs) That conversation with Andy is coming up in just a couple minutes. Well, before we get to Mark's conversation with Andy Samberg, let's turn things over to our critic, Glenn Whip for a regular segment we are calling Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. It's going to be a weekly update on kind of the beat-by-beat happenings of awards season, the various races that we know, events as they happen. Like basically Glenn's going to let us know, you know, what's going on. Because Glenn has the crystal ball that we all want. So here's what Glenn's got for us today. I get asked all the time, what's it like to be an Oscar voter? And... This year, you can pretty much have the exact same experience as every Motion Picture Academy members will be having as they go through this very strange, very weird, very different award season. Because we're not leaving our homes. And for movies, everyone is watching them in their living rooms, on their laptops, on their phones, God forbid, but yes, however you can get these screening links to work. It's weird. Right about now, we're in early December, we would have been through several film festivals. We would have been through some splashy premieres, all kinds of events to give award season contenders, Oscar contenders, visibility, some buzz. Right now, there's no buzz because everyone's isolated inside their homes. As I speak with Academy members, you know what they're watching? Um, The Crown and The Queen's Gambit. 
neither of which, as you probably know, are eligible for the Oscars, but they will be for the Emmys next year. No one's watching anything right now. The Oscars are at the end of April. They seem very far away. It's hard to focus right now. And everyone's just trying to do what they can to get through the day and wake up for the next one. So it's a different season. We're all in isolation and the Academy is having the same experience that you're having at home. We're all watching everything at home, but right now we're just kind of dipping our toe into the idea of an awards season. So join me in the coming weeks as we as we do a collective toe dip and, and we start to see more things. We start to think about things more. Hopefully in the new year, we start to see each other a little bit more. And now let's go to Mark's interview with Andy Samberg. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And now I saw the movie Palm Springs at Sundance when it premiered there. And you are a producer on the film as well. Your production company logo comes up at the beginning, Lonely Island Classics. And it's a sort of a Sundance-designed joke that it, it's a takeoff of the logo for Sony Pictures Classics. It makes me laugh every time I see it. Where did that idea come from? <laughs> um, the first time we did that was on a different movie we produced that was also at Sundance called Brigsby Bear. And I think in the initially it was going to just be for Sundance. And it did get a laugh there, apparently. And then it was bought by Sony Pictures Classics, <laughs> which was cool. So we just kind of stuck with it because it was still making us giggle. And now sort of continuing ways to sort of like upend, you know, the expectations of how things will be done. When Palm Springs sold at Sundance, it set a record, the highest sale ever at the festival for the sum of $17 million. Explain. Well, we've been saying that Hulu insisted on that number. Uh, There's a chance that in our delirium, having stayed up all night negotiating, you know, the sun was rising and we got the final call asking us if this would close the deal. And of course, at that point, we were like, yeah, yeah, whatever the lawyers say. Um, (laughs) Thought it might be funny to add that 69 cents to it so that the headline wasn't just that it was the biggest sale ever, because we knew that once that was a part of it, there would be a target on our back anyway. Um, I know speaking personally, I'm definitely petty enough that when I hear something sells for a ton and then I watch it, I go, well, it was good, but it wasn't worth that. So, (laughs) you know, us, we're always just trying to soften it and undercut the, the business side of things so much, since that's really not why we got into it to begin with. So it's always like exciting and we love it. And obviously we like making money and getting to pay the people who helped us make the movie money. But it's also all kind of ridiculous and and fun. But now does it get harder to continue to sort of have fun with like the mechanics of the industry as you sort of progress? And like, is there ever an impulse to like straighten up and take this all more seriously? Yeah, I mean, doing physical production definitely knocks some of the fun out of a person. (laughs) It also makes me appreciate all the people that have worked so hard on projects we've done in the past while we've been just dicking around and living it up. But, you know, you got to always just keep sight of, of why we're doing it to begin with. We grew up loving comedy. We grew up loving movies and TV and now we get to do it and it's the coolest thing ever. And I always try and think about, you know, what I used to love when people I looked up to did stuff. You know, like 
And I would watch Farrell on a talk show and he would turn the whole thing into like a meta weird thing where he's in character. Part of the, you know, the philosophy of comedy is let's take it easy a little bit here. <laughs> That's not, none of this is that important, you know, it's all just kind of, it's fun and it's great. And hopefully you can make something that's meaningful to people and helps them in their everyday life, you know, have a laugh or feel an emotion or, you know, give back the things you've been given in that regard. But I also think part of that is not taking yourself too seriously and rolling with the the ocean on it. You know, it goes up and down and you're never on fully solid ground. So best to make a little bit of fun of it along the way. I was so taken aback to realize that Lazy Sunday, the the video that Lonely Island made, that was really one of the things that sort of broke you guys out when you were with Saturday Night Live. That's 15 years ago now. Like, it it sounds crazy to say that. It doesn't feel that long, at least to me. And I still think of you as sort of like a, a fresh young talent. <laughs> and it's interesting to think that you've been in the industry and doing work for that long. Yeah, it trips us out sometimes, too. Um, and then, you know, we'll really take a moment, look back and think about all the stuff we've made. And it is a lot. And and thank goodness you learn so much from going through those things. Um, I'm in my 40s, despite what <laughs> others may think. I think part of what keeps people thinking of me that way is that a lot of people's kids like our stuff. So it feels a little bit useful in that way. But I'm also with you. Time just zips right by, man. It's crazy. Like, you know... We text with friends from SNL sometimes along those same lines of anniversaries where we'd be like, yo, it was 15 years ago that we got hired. And we'll all be like, and now we all have kids and are married and production companies. And like, it's crazy. And it makes sense when you look back on it, especially you feel it when like young people approach you and say, oh man, I used to love you on SNL when I was in elementary school or whatever. You're just like, fuck. <laughs> What happened? My life <laughs> passed me by. I've said this a million times, but it's the truth. When I was eight years old, all I wanted to do was be on SNL and be like the people on SNL that I looked up to. And so anytime anyone comes up to me and tells me like, hey, I loved you on SNL, I got to pinch myself, you know, because now I am that to them. For me specifically, I literally could not have asked for anything more in my career. But now with Palm Springs, so this is the the first feature film for for writer Andy Ciara and director Max Barbacow. What does it mean to you, you know, now as a producer to be able to give somebody a, a hand and to, you know, help these other people out at the beginning of their career? It feels great. I mean, obviously, Andy and Max are great guys who did a great job coming up with this movie. And I was very flattered that they wanted me to be a part of it. The thing that felt the most nice, I would say, is that I actually felt like I and our company really did help and contribute. You know, we have projects where people really don't need us that much because they're just more seasoned, you know, like Tim Robinson's show or, you know, Pen15. Those girls came in and we were just like, oh, yeah, you, there's nothing we can tell you. You guys are geniuses. <laughs> Not that Andy and Max aren't. But because I am in the movie, it became a different animal, you know? So it was it, it became more of a collaboration. It became a lot more of us, you know, finding a way to keep a creative cocoon intact the whole time and sort of protect the, the basic things about the movie that we all agreed we thought were special and why we all wanted to be making it and, and not 
lose sight of that and get pushed into other versions of the movie that would make it a little less special to us. So in that sense, it felt incredible. You know, anytime one of them said like, hey, thank you, this is, it's working. It's It feels like what we were thinking it was going to be. That's the dream as a producer. You just want to do right by the people that you're helping, you know, help them bring their vision to life. And so what was kind of like the the kernel? Like what was the thing that, that you really liked and what did you feel like you did to sort of help that grow? Yeah, I mean, the script is really what I fell in love with. It just was so funny and interesting and multifaceted and the characters were complex and like you loved them, but they were also fucked up. And they had interesting arcs about, you know, giving up on themselves versus, you know, learning to forgive themselves and re-engage with their own life. But it was also just the way it was written was good, (laughs) which I know is subjective. But for me reading it, I was like, I like how this is written. I can visualize it. The jokes are landing. The emotions are landing. I get who the characters are. It keeps surprising me. It keeps having turns and escalations I'm not expecting. And it was tight. You know, I, I, I'm i a big supporter of keeping things tight. <laughs> and I think by the time we got the edit all the way done, it's like 80-something minutes, which is nice, especially for a movie that, you know, packs so much into it. It really has a good pace, which I was really proud of. But it was more just... A combination of the script being great, seeing myself in the role and knowing that I wouldn't feel embarrassed to try it, and specifically to the premise, knowing that even though it was a time loop, you know, premise, that it had been handled already in such a way that it felt like it was building on everyone's pre-knowledge of time loop material instead of just rehashing it beat for beat. We always want to make something that's rewarding people for having watched everything that we have also watched. You know, we don't want to act like people don't know these tropes and don't know these other projects. Like, that's the business we're in. It's the world we live in. People love this shit. So if you're going to do something that's about a time loop, then great. Start it way after your first character has already gotten stuck. That's a great first step. Second, bring someone else into it. Third, bring a third person into it, you know, and like give a lot more purchase to the other character, to the female character, you know, bring her into it, have her be proactive, give her her entire own emotional arc. That stuff was all in there when Andy wrote it. We just amped it up and make it dirty. That was the other thing. (laughs) Specifically, you know, in regards to Groundhog Day, we were like, this sets it apart too. It's like kind of an indie, dirtier, edgier take on that, just tonally. Because the movie is, in some ways, it's a a rom-com, but then it has this kind of sci-fi time loop twist to it. And it's funny, when the movie was premiering at Sundance, I remember there was a lot of attempts to sort of keep the time loop aspect of it a little bit of a secret, so it could be a real surprise for audiences. But then by the time the movie was coming out, I think it's like in the trailer. Like, you, was it just too hard to not talk about? Because otherwise, you're only talking about like the first five minutes of the movie. Yes. I, I asked Hulu and Neon if we could cut trailers where it didn't give it away. And I don't know if they ever actually tried it, but I certainly never saw one. And at a certain point, when companies buy your movie for that amount of money, there are certain moments where you realize, like, I'm going to stop pushing on this one. (laughs) I will say they were amazing and really collaborative. 
Like I worked really closely with them on the key art and the trailer. And, you know, I was auditioning songs for the trailer for them for like over a month and they were really responsive and amazing about it. I think that was just one where they decided like all the best stuff for the trailer happens after you reveal it's a time loop and we're not going to budge on that. And when they showed me what they had cut, I was like, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> I can't front. Like the funniest shit happens when you know they're in a time loop, you know, like you can't do any of those things if you're just cutting the whole trailer from the first 15 minutes. So uh, it was a concession we made, but I, I think in the end, probably for the best. This episode of the Envelope podcast is sponsored by Apple TV Plus, presenting the animated film Wolfwalkers. A young apprentice hunter journeys to Ireland with her father to help wipe out the last wolf pack. Everything changes when she befriends a free-spirited girl from a mysterious tribe, rumored to transform into wolves by night. Go to fyc.appletvplus.com for more. So the movie premiered at Sundance in kind of the before times and then came out over the summer once everybody was firmly into sort of pandemic quarantine times. And the fact that this is a movie about feeling stuck in place and fighting to get out of that, it really has become one of the movies of the pandemic. And obviously there's no way you knew or predicted or had anything to do with that. How do you feel about what the movie means now versus what it maybe meant to you back in January? It definitely changed. I hesitate to say words like fortuitous because there's nothing fortuitous or positive about the fact that we're in a global pandemic and people are sick and dying. You know, it's it's been a nightmare. I think the good I can glean from it is I've had a lot of people say that it helped them, you know, in dealing with the moment that we're in. The themes of the movie are catharsis in some ways for some people. It's acknowledging what it would be like to be stuck and be frustrated by that and deciding whether or not to give up or to find a new road to feeling happiness in your own life. And even more so, it's it's about what a lot of people are going through, unable to leave their houses and do things they would normally do, which is you're stuck with yourself and or the people you have chosen to live your life with. So like anything regarding yourself or your relationships that you've been putting off, where you're like, ah, it's, it's not perfect, but you know, I'm too busy to really worry about it. All that shit is coming up now. <laughs> and you hear a lot of stories. I mean, I know people, for better or for worse, where they've either doubled down on how they feel about their own life or they've like really spun out. And I understand that feeling, you know, it's, this is a hard stretch as a human being on earth. It's not like, so we're at our house. It's an extended snow day. It's like, we're like fucking in it. We're trapped with ourselves here. So I think having a movie that's really exploring that notion that also has some catharsis and a lot of fun and some positive 
messaging in it about love and about commitment and about, you know, forgiving yourself and and opening yourself up to the idea of improving who you are and, and not punishing yourself for your past mistakes. I think that movie is valuable in the moment that we're living in, yeah. And then so much of the film really rests on the chemistry between you and your co-star, Kristen Milioti. You know, you play two characters who are not looking for romance, and yet they they find each other, then they're sort of stuck in this situation together, and, you know, things things blossom. I am endlessly fascinated by screen chemistry. Like, at, at what point do you know that it's working as well as it was between you and Kristen? I mean, truthfully, you don't actually know until you're editing, in my opinion, because I've seen it before where it seems really good on set. And then once you're in post, it's like, oh, it's okay. And I've also seen the opposite where you're like, this is not happening. But then you manipulate the cut and all of a sudden you're like, it's good. It's charming. I like them. I want them to be together. I will say in this case, me and Kristen became fast friends. We have a very similar sense of humor, a very similar worldview, a lot of similar points of reference. And we saw the movie very similarly. And what we wanted for the characters very similarly. So that helped right out of the gate. A huge part of it, in my opinion, is just we just, for whatever reason, had good comedy chemistry. You know, we anticipated each other well. We studied one another socially and, you know, while we were doing scenes and got a good rhythm going together. She has a very strong energy, especially within that character. But I think the fact that I was playing a character who was so laid back and kind of reserved about things really played into that and allowed her to really shine in a way that I was very excited about, you know, where there's this sort of constant ebb and flow between Sarah and Niles, and he has no problem acquiescing in many instances, which allows her to really crackle and be hilarious, which I think she does. So it's a long way of saying it's crapshoot, and we... You know, we cast her very intentionally thinking that it would be the case because we loved her other work. And we had met her for, you know, a meeting before we started putting the movie together and knew that we thought she was great. And it worked out. So it was, you know, educated guessing mixed with a little bit of luck. (laughs) I know there are two dance numbers in the movie that are so outrageous. One is you solo and one is with Kristen. How much work went into those? Like, how, how hard were those dance numbers? Well, I mean, we did a few, like, two-hour sessions of rehearsal before we started shooting. Then during shooting, we would sneak off and practice it here and there, you know, like between setups. We'd be like, all right, now we're going to go stand on the side of the road in the desert and practice that dance again. And obviously on the days we shot them, we would rehearse a lot leading up until that moment of shooting. But, you know, she's a Broadway actor. (laughs) For her, I think it was really not that hard. She's used to doing all that kind of stuff and singing well. Whereas I've done like, I've been like the fourth guy in a top hat in the background of an SNL monologue. (laughs) And generally kick in the wrong direction as everyone else. Because your solo number, where you're dancing sort of through a crowd of people who are dancing and you're kind of anticipating the moves that everyone else is going to do... There are parts of that that are just astonishing. Like you kind of can't believe like what is <laughs> happening is happening. Well, thank you. That was the goal. <laughs> I'll say this: steady cam makes everything look cooler. Anyone ever doing anything, I recommend steady cam. 
gives you a little extra swirl, a little extra action on, on all your moves. But yeah, it was really fun. And, you know, a lot of those uh, party guests are plants that are part of the dance, you know, ensemble that helped us put it all together. So we were rehearsing with them and then they were in wardrobe as wedding guests. So it was it was a, a group effort. <laughs> and now the movie is quite funny, obviously, but also there is sort of an emotional weight and realness to it. And for you as a performer, did you like getting to do those more sort of dramatic moments, but you didn't have to like full on like Andy Samberg does a drama? Like it feels like you kind of got the best of both sides of that. Absolutely. I loved doing those scenes. I mean, I've been sort of inching my way towards it. You know, I, I did some work like that on Celeste and Jesse Forever, which is a movie I made with my friend Rashida Jones. And even on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you know, we've had some like slightly heavier episodes in the back three years or so. And a lot of relationship scenes as well between Melissa Fumero and myself that have gotten a little more serious. And I've really enjoyed that. You know, I've enjoyed opening myself up emotionally as a performer and bringing it down a notch. Um, you know, I know some people probably know me as a very arched, wacky performer, which is something I still do love and stand by. But it's nice to be able to show range. And there's so many things that I watch and love where that's the performance style and it feels a little more grounded. So, yeah, I agree with what you said. This was a great opportunity for me to do that without feeling like it wasn't like there was no comedy. That would give me a little bit of pause, although maybe not now. But going into this movie, I liked that there was the safety net of big laughs and a sci-fi genre element. You know, it was all kind of cloaking devices. <laughs> so that if I ended up not being happy with how the dramatic stuff came out, there was a lot more, a lot of other things to hang on to. Um, and then as it turned out, I I just felt really inspired by the people I was acting against. You know, Kristen and JK specifically really, I feel like, raised my game. And because I didn't want to humiliate myself in front of them, I, I took it a lot more seriously. And uh, we got good stuff. <laughs> and now you mentioned Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And there was a lot of talk over the summer about the fact that this is a, a cop comedy that, you know, you're continuing to make at a moment when the whole nation is rethinking their attitude towards policing. How is that going? Like, what what has the process been of sort of rethinking what that show can be? I'm going to find out soon. I know they are planning to address a lot of the things that have been going on in our country regarding police. Um, I've had a few conversations with Dan Gore about what they're thinking. I'm excited to, to get into it. You know, I... I know we're going to have to strike a very delicate balance. There's a, a very fine needle to be threaded on that because we are, first and foremost, a comedy show. And quite frankly, there's a lot going on in that realm that's not funny. So I think we're going to take our cuts and we're going to attempt to get a little more serious at times and forgo the comedy. And I think we're also going to try and do some things that dabble in the comedy surrounding those situations. And it hopefully will be a little bit more character-based since our audience knows our characters and knows their their heart, you know, <laughs> what their hopes and dreams might be. But the thing we keep talking about, and I don't want to sound defensive because, again, I haven't even seen a script or anything yet, is we've 
never been a show that has said we are representative of the world we live in. It's always been kind of a fantasy, you know? It's like, what if there was this squad of detectives that were really socially conscious, but also great at their jobs, <laughs> and also really funny, and they also really loved each other and supported each other in their personal lives? Like, wouldn't that be cathartic to watch? That's kind of what we're up against now is, do we betray that after seven seasons with a dedicated fan base who has told us they like that? And if we do, to what degree? Um, so I think that's the balance that, that is trying to be figured out now by Gore and the writing staff. And, you know, pretty soon, I'm sure the cast as well will have their voices integrated. But, um, you know, I, I think we're all up for the challenge. We love the show and and we love our country and we want both things to to be better. Now, I want to be sure to ask you about the ending of Palm Springs, because really, as much as any recent movie, it spawned a lot of kind of ending explained, like articles, people wanting to talk about it. What is it? What does it mean? What are those dinosaurs all about? For you, were you surprised that the ending sort of spurred as much conversation as as it did? No. In fact, it was our intention. And I, I really mean this. From the first meeting I had, me and Becky Sloviter, who ran our company at the time, and uh, Max and Andy, we talked at length about how our goal for the movie, outside of people, you know, having a good time and leaving emotionally satisfied, was that they would leave the movie and all have discussions about what happens. And that our dream was that they would all have a different opinion about what happens. That we, we actively wanted it to be like that. And I know that some people have mixed feelings about that kind of an ending, you know, like an Inception ending or something, which... You know, to me, I love the ending of Inception, where I'm just like, yes, they did a thing that's confusing a little bit, but they nailed it because it's the, that's the point, <laughs> is does it fall or doesn't it? Exactly. Like, let's talk about it. We, we were hoping to have a similar effect as that with this. And the trick was, and I think we achieve it, um, depending on who you ask, of course, the trick was making the, the emotional story feel like it has already paid off. Which is to say that the moment that Niles and Sarah walk into that cave together at the end to blow themselves up, that you're like, oh, it's a happy ending. They chose to try. They chose to take the leap. They chose each other. You know, they chose to forgive themselves and take the next step in their lives. And then they do it. And whatever meaning you assign to what comes after is almost irrelevant. And, you know, for some audiences, it was not irrelevant, and we found that out. <laughs> but I do think even for the people who wanted a much more concrete answer about what happens, they still said that they really liked the movie, which was, I think, speaks to the, the emotional arc between the two leads, feeling like it pays off and resolves. Because in a, in a sense, there's, you know... There's two stories. One is the science sci-fi story plot. And the other one is the emotional romantic story between Niles and Sarah. And they interweave a great deal. But, you know, I think it's the correct response for people to wonder what happened. And then have hopefully fun conversations with people who agree or disagree with them. <laughs> I know, Andy, people have been spending so much time like watching 
things over the past, you know, few months. The last thing I want to ask you is what what have you been watching? Is there anything that you would want to like recommend to other people? Oh, sure. We've been watching so much, man. It's crazy. Let me put it this way. We're on season six of The West Wing. <laughs> 23 episodes a season. So we're on that. We watched uh, all of Mad Men, which was fantastic. We were very late to that. But new stuff, uh, I loved Devs. I loved Raised by Wolves. Um, I enjoyed Westworld. All the sci-fi stuff I can't, I, I just love. Um, we just watched The Queen's Gambit, which I thought was fantastic. God, I know I'm going to forget stuff that I really liked that I wish that I said. Oh, uh, we watched that movie Crip Camp, which I thought was phenomenal. I just watched Borat 2, which I thought was fucking hilarious. What else? You're not messing around. You really are watching a lot of stuff. We're watching a lot of stuff. It's been great. <laughs> I'm excited that The Crown's coming back. That's a great show. What else has come out? There's been some good stuff. I'll remember like 10 more after we get off this. But anyway, that's a sampling. Mark, that was a great interview. I love the idea that Andy Samberg is excited about The Crown. Like, I want to just spend like an afternoon talking to Andy about this season of The Crown. That would be epic. Wait, you're, are you a crown head? Oh, for sure. You're not a crown head? I have, I have not watched the program, no. Mark, what have you been doing with your time? This is the perfect time. But, you know, I, I, uh, I have to watch movies, Yvonne. And so I, I, I do watch a lot of serial programs, but I have to catch up on a lot of movies, too. Well, I feel like we need to, like, carve out some time for you. I can talk with your editor. You know, there should be at least one day where you can just get in your sweats and watch Dash and Lily on Netflix. Like, it's time. Yvonne, have you met me? I don't own sweats. <laughs> And now I know what to get you for Christmas. I actually, I did buy for my quarantine or whatever. I did buy like a, a sort of old school Adidas tracksuit. Oh my God. Instagram it or it didn't happen. You have to Instagram that. Well, uh, offline. We'll continue that <laughs> offline. But I'm looking forward to being back here with you for our next episode. Who is it you're having a conversation with? Well, I'm going to be speaking with Journey Smollett, who stars in HBO's Lovecraft Country. You'll definitely want to listen. You know, as actors, sometimes we really downplay what we do. Society does it. Society paints this picture like actors are vain. All we want is fame. Or they'll be like, well, can you really believe him? Because he is an actor, so he's good at lying. I suck at lying. I'm an awful liar. I got to believe what I'm saying, okay? Like, I don't, it's not lying what I'm doing. I got to believe it. I got to go to a place in my imagination where I believe I'm this fucking woman. That conversation with Journey is coming up in episode two of this podcast. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted and reported by me, Mark Olson, and Yvonne Villarreal. Our producers are Paige Heimson and Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. He also made our rockin' theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a five-star review on Apple. It really does help. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important. And the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. 
visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.